Welcome to the Revenue Architect podcast, where we talk to revenue leaders about how they're growing their businesses. My guest this week is Abid Mohammed, co-founder and chief commercial officer of Birdie, based out of London. Abid, welcome to the pod, and thanks so much for joining us today. How are you doing? Thanks so much for having me, Arnie. It's great to be here. Abid, I really just want to jump straight in here. I'm so excited to talk to you. I've got so many questions because I think that your story of growing Birdie is one that our readers are going to find absolutely fascinating. So let me start by asking you, how did you get the idea for Birdie in the first place? Uh, That's an interesting question. I think um, there are sometimes uh, stories where you fall into it and there's sometimes stories where you craft the story around it. And I'll tell you a bit of a mix of both, I think, on, on, on this one. So for me personally, I've got a background as a management consultant. I spent some time with Save the Children. I always had a passion for social purpose. And I knew that whatever I wanted to do, um, the social mission was going to be super important to me uh, on that. When I was spending that time with Save the Children, what I found was that the long-term thinking and the the kind of um, the ambition that I had for, for creating an impact um, there were certainly aspects of the charity world that were great, but there were also constraints within that context. And so I started to get more and more excited about technology and how we might be able to drive change through um, technology and, and applying that to social problems. So I left and I joined um, a startup incubator, for want of a better term, um, of a corporate VC. So it was AXA, which is an insurance company here in Europe, um, and joined Camet, which was their startup studio. And the idea was that I would spend six to nine months there learn how to do innovation, quote unquote, um, <laughs> and then um, and then move on and, and do my own thing. And I spent the first three months working with a project that, that wasn't going well. Um, I think there's some pers- personality clashes and various things there. But then met Max, who is one of my co-founders here at Birdie. And Max at the time was looking at the elderly care space. And so there wasn't much you know, more than that, except that, you know, elderly care, okay, interesting, sounds like there's a bit of a social mission um, associated with that, hit it off with Max. We got along well, um, and you know, at the early stages of figuring out what we wanted to do, and we kind of started from that. Um, and so that's that's you know the the starting point from my journey in, into the space. Didn't know necessarily what the idea was for for what we were going to be doing, and I think that's something that for us has really evolved a bit organically over time, and took quite a while at the beginning. If I'm honest with you, um, the macro trends were there for everyone to see. Uh, you don't need me to tell you that the you know, the world's got an aging population, more and more people um, living longer. Interestingly, the years of independent life, the years of healthy life are increasing, but not at the same rate as the rate of life expectancy. And so what we see is that there's this growing group of people who are going to require care in some form or another. When we started to investigate the sector, um, we looked at residential care first, because of course, that's what anyone thinks of when you think of care. But residential is capacity constrained it's expensive for families or for the state and fundamentally people don't want to go into residential care i don't know if you ever had that conversation with a relative or you know around the dinner table people don't want to end up in residential care and so we started to be more and more convinced that the future of care this massive growing problem was going to be at home and that's really the, the starting point for us um, from there we've grown more and more excited and passionate about the impact that delivering better care at home can have on the health service overall and starting to look at how 60% of healthcare costs are um, associated with the elderly and the way that the world thinks about elderly care is either um, based on a particular setting so either in the hospital or in a residential care facility whatever it might be 
all very condition specific. You're treating someone for diabetes or for heart condition or whatever it might be. And no one is taking this population view of different cohorts of elderly people who have so many different comorbidities, so many different social factors. There's so many different contributing factors to whether someone can maintain their independence. And so that's the angle that we're, we're looking at. It. It's really interesting. You know, the way that you kind of looked at the, the status quo and said, you know, let's not go after uh, residential care, which is kind of the obvious thing, but let's go where the, you know, where the trend is taking us more towards at-home care. And I'm curious, you know, as you, as you sort of got onto the journey there, how did you find your first customers, you know, founders doing sales as a kind of a journey every founder goes through? And I'm curious, how did you, how did you find your first customers? Yeah, we had some funny moments along that journey, Arnie, if I'm, if I'm honest with you. Mm-hmm. I remember um, we, you know, we, we did the standard founder thing of looking at a whole bunch of companies that we thought were in the space and sending some cold emails out and seeing what we got back. We actually got a few bites from that, which was, um, which was good. We had the accent name behind us, which I think helped the credibility at that point in time. And I remember sitting in a conversation uh, with Max with a company that's actually now one of our longest running customers. Um, and Max in his thick Belgian accent talking about how our system was very rubbish and really rubbish and really rubbish and getting very confused looks from the CEO and having to interpret that Max was saying robust and not rubbish <laughs> in, his, uh, in his accent. So we had we had a few moments like that. Um, but if I'm honest with you, Arnie, the, the, um, you know, the evolution of what our proposition was took us a bit of time. You know, originally, we had a B2B2C proposition. We were saying to these care providers, look, we're not going to charge you anything for this. We're going to have um, hardware installed around the house, and that's going to be a proposition that you're going to sell um, to the families of, of the people who are receiving care. It's really only over time that we started to realize that you needed to have that deeply embedded within the care provider's core processes, core, core way of working. And therefore, we needed to transition to a more B2B model over time and start to solve the most critical problems for these care providers. I think when we realized that we needed to solve those critical problems and we started to address those, that's really when we started to get traction with uh, potential customers and you mentioned there uh confusing rubbish and robust it's it's funny even when your product is robust there's always going to be something that you don't have that that customers needs inevitable especially when you're kind of figuring out product market fit what kind of objections did you run into in those early days when you were doing the sales yourself (laughs) um plenty (laughs) <laughs> I remember sitting on trains all across the country and going and meeting people in tiny little back offices in um, you know, uh, a room as big as a cupboard um, and talking about you know, what, their, what their challenges were and how we might be able to address some of those. There were probably two main things that, that came up, if I categorize it a little bit. One was, you know, what problem are we actually solving for these customers? Um, what, what, is the, what is the urgent issue that they have to address? In our case, that really turned out to be medications. So if it was just about recording the day-to-day of like how that client was doing and replacing some of the paper records, useful, but it wasn't a critical business function for these um, for these care providers. The, the argument that the return on investment, the return on time uh, invested on their side wasn't big enough to justify the, the kind of working with the startup that didn't you know, have any credibility on any other customers. Once we started to solve that medication problem, that really became the turning point of saying, okay, look, you know, it's not based on the AXA brand behind you or because I like you, but actually you're solving a critical business problem for me. And that was a massive turning point for us in terms of our, our traction. So I think focusing on that, what's the burning issue? What's the burning topic that you're, you're addressing? 
I think the second major objection that we faced was a problem around integrations. So a lot of these care providers had an existing system in place that helped them do the back office, the logistics, the payroll, the finance, the, those sorts of things. It was really the core part of their business, the, the, the operating system, the beating heart, people refer to it as. When we didn't have an integration with that system, it became really difficult because what we were essentially trying to do was to add you know, uh, another core system to, but was more of a point solution and not necessarily integrated. And when it's not integrated, that became a really difficult conversation. So we had to work quite hard to get some of those integrations off the ground early on. And it was only when we got those integrations that we really then started to solve that objection. Did you find that those kind of beating heart systems, those enterprise systems, if you like, that the care providers were using, did you find that it was like a dominant player there or was it like very fragmented? Yeah, so it's interesting. In our market, there's there's one player that's a private equity-backed um, software house operating multiple different verticals, grow by acquisition, purchasing lots of different softwares. They've probably got a 30% market share, so, so they're the market leader. But we're operating in a very fragmented market. So in our in our world, in the UK, in, in our customer base, there are thousands and thousands of mom-and-pop shop businesses um, who run their care businesses and, and operate. And so what we found was that there is a whole host of what I refer to as lifestyle businesses. So these are people who've grown their software business over the last 10, 15 years, whatever it might be, have built good businesses out of that, have listened to the customer's needs, have evolved it in some way, but don't have venture funding, don't have the backing to, to scale necessarily. Maybe don't have the ambition always um, to, to scale in that same way. And so there's a lot of this legacy software that also exists in our market. Mm. Um, With that very um, kind of fragmented market, thousands of providers, a lot of kind of uh, mom and pops. By the way, what do we say in the UK for mom and pops? Um, that's a very American thing. <laughs> I still use mom and pop. I'm not sure we've got a great, uh, great translation of that. Uh, they say mom and dad businesses. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, given given the fragmented market, um, how how long did it take you to kind of zero in on who your ideal customer profile is? Um, we probably spent two years, like from from that point where we had a few slides and a bit of our hypothesis about what was going on, um, to really, I, I don't think it was so much understanding who our ideal customer profile was. I think that we we sort of knew, maybe it wasn't as refined as we would want it to be, but we sort of knew, but we didn't have a strong value proposition for them. And so it probably took us the best part of two, two and a half years to get to a point where we had a strong value proposition that we could, in theory, repeat and start to build a team around and and take to market. And what was that value prop? Well, it started with the medications bit. So the mm. the, 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 the core thing that we solved with that medications thing was a, a risk question for these care providers. So me as a business owner of a care provider, employing staff who are out delivering care all over my town, I don't have any visibility of what they're doing day to day. And so if they're giving medications, what happens in the world before Birdie is that they're doing that on paper-based records. And so at the end of the month, I'm going out or someone's bringing all these papers back to the office. They sit in a pile for two weeks and then 10% of them get audited. And we find out that someone's missed a medication now five weeks ago. And so what do we do? Like, there's not really a lot you can do. You can bring the care worker back in, you can train them, you can report it, you've got a safeguarding issue. It's a regulated market, so you have to deal with all the regulator and, and with the local authority buyers. But it's a massive problem for these care providers. And so the, the proposition of what we were saying was have real-time visibility, understand whether that medication has been given or not given in a really user-friendly, intuitive system. And so eliminate all the risk that you have with that, the sleepless nights, but also the time that you then spend having to deal with all of that stuff afterwards. 
It's really interesting. I watched the Enthuse video, the case study on your website. Yeah. It's exactly what you just said. Uh, that was a yeah. fantastic testimonial. Very clear, like for someone outside the industry like me, I I could understand very clearly the benefit you were delivering. Well, I was just going to say, Arnie. I think one of the things that we got right early on that probably useful for people thinking about how to set that up in, in a way that you know, solves that that core problem is we made sure there was a really tight feedback loop and a really tight collaboration partnership between firstly the customer and the commercial teams who are dealing you know, with every single conversation, but then also between the customer and the product teams directly. And so one of the things that we instigated very early on was we put very structured notes in our CRM for every sales call. And so we had um, whether that's a prospecting call, whether that is the sales exec or me at the time, um, you know, recording the notes from each meeting. But then we also shared all of that in a fully transparent way across the company on Slack. And we made sure that we started to log those. We use a tool called Product Board, um, which the product teams then use to kind of capture and filter through all the insights there. And what that meant was that every single interaction that we had with the customer, we were learning something from that. And tied to that, which in itself was you know, a bit of a, uh, a mechanism that we used to do, it. but we also ensured that with these early customers, and users a great example of this, we really fostered the sense of co-development and co-design and collaboration. And so we brought them along that journey with us. They knew that we weren't the finished article, the beginning point, but it was really about what's the, what's the direction, what's the journey in which we're, we're going on. Um, I'll go back to the story that we talked about earlier on, on Alina, um, which was that first customer, the, the one where Max was, was talking about their software being robust or, or rubbish. Um, this, you know, they've had incidents recently where other software providers have had you know, severe outages and, 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 and issues. And we're the first port of call for them um, because we have that relationship of saying, look, we're, we're in this together. It's a real partnership. We're not just here to sell you a software and then disappear off. Um, it's really about how do we help you be successful and how do we make sure you're delivering the best possible care for your clients? It's interesting you mentioned there the, the partnership. I think the value of partnership and customer success teams is, is a little bit under underrepresented, undervalued, especially in SaaS. It's the investor mindset. It's, like, it's all about the software. You sell it, set it and forget it. But customers really care. They pick vendors based on who's going to be there with them, especially if it's a startup. And I think it's great that you did that. And I can see why why you've been successful. I think a lot more companies should should learn from you. I think in in the SMB world, especially, I think mm. that, that sort of close relationship oh. is really powerful. That's a really good point, which is very counterintuitive for a lot of venture-backed companies. Like, well, it's SMB, they're small. How can we possibly service them? But they're really the companies that need the most hand-holding because they're the fewest resources and they don't have specialists. Everyone's a generalist. So yeah, totally makes and they sense. Want, and they want someone to trust. They, they want a partner yeah. they can trust. And if yeah. you can build that trust, then you're going to get that feedback that is going to help you be successful. Especially care providers who like their whole business is based on trust. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. yeah I'm, I'm, I'm biased for sure. By, by the industry that we're in. But yes, absolutely. It's, it's cool. So, you know, as, as you kind of develop this value prop around medication and the risk mitigation around you know, tracking where the medication has been taken, how did you kind of translate that into generating leads on a, you know, predictable way? Um, it took some time. <laughs> really? Um, they didn't just come yeah. in? <laughs> strangely enough, strangely enough. So we're, we're a bit blessed in our market, um, Arnie, and I didn't realize quite the gold mine we were sat on because this was my first 
startup. It was my first role with any sort of go-to-market motion behind it. But the regulator in our market publishes publicly the data for all the care providers that exist in the market. And so we had a we had an an existing view of the entire you know, total addressable market for the UK. I don't know many other startups that have quite that luxury um, with the robustness of the data that we had. But what that meant was that, was that we um, we kind of skipped a step. And as we start to think about internationalization in other markets, we're now having to think about how we go back to that step. But um, we started with an outbound sales team. Um, we, we didn't invest heavily on the marketing side in the early days. And we basically hired an SDR um, I started doing the prospecting myself, figured that I was getting pulled into plenty of different things. And actually, probably the place where I could add the most value was the learning from the sales conversations themselves. And so we brought one SDR in and myself and that SDR, Nathan, you know, sold, basically. And so he would be calling up these agencies. We tested so many different value propositions from we're going to bring you customers to we're going to see if there's a, an insurance play that we can help you with, with AXA. So we're going to help solve this medication topic. You know, plenty of different things that we that we tried. At one point, really, when we were starting before the medication, we tried to pay people to use the service, and that created more skepticism than I think uh, anything else. Uh, I remember being in some very funny meetings where that happened. Um, but it was really about the volume. So it, you know, the volume of outbound activity, creating the the opportunities, and then using that to iterate on what the messaging was that was going to work and resonate with customers. I imagine you probably started with like, this is who we are, this is what we do. And you probably evolved into, I imagine you have this problem, you know, we can help. Every company kind of goes through that, you know, being seller-centric to being customer-centric. How did you kind of go through that journey and how did you kind of tune your messaging? So I think, I mean, I get like a hundred inbounds as a CRO, you know, like every month and it just I'm, don't even pay attention to most of them. And, you know, given how saturated email is as a channel, uh, just, yeah, curious how you figured out how to stand out there. So the first thing is we weren't doing over email. So we were doing over calls, um, which I think probably changes the dynamic a little bit. In the market in which we operate, care, everything happens over the phone anyway. These businesses have to be um, responsive to the phones. So we were getting, even if we had a gatekeeper, we were still speaking to someone. And the gatekeepers in our industry aren't, secretaries or receptionists or true gatekeepers there's someone operating in that business who happens to be the person nearest the phone and so probably someone who's also affected by some of the problems that we're trying to help solve and resolve and so every phone call was a learning experience for us on, on, on that front um in terms of the actual you know sales pitch and when we got to, to sit in front of customers i think you're right we probably did start with a bit of a us-centric um, approach. Frankly, it's also because in the very early days, we didn't know what our value proposition really was. And so, you know, we were we were figuring it out. I think as we, um, as we got clearer on what our value proposition was, I think we then started to couch this more in terms of exactly as you say, the, the, um, the pain messaging and the, the problems that we're going to solve and, and all the rest of that. There's some very good um, medium articles on you know, the best sales deck I've ever seen. I think it's a Zora one and um, stuff like that, which is which is very helpful in terms of that early you know, crafting and thinking through the positioning. I should also probably shout out um, actually two two other references that I, I really took a lot from. Um, one was the Mark Roberge book um, on the sales acceleration formula. That was really helpful in thinking about how we could 
get things off the ground and structure and for someone who'd never been a sales person or a leader and never had to think about an icp or anything like that that was that was really helpful and the second one from a very practical aspect was pete kazanji's um book Mm. um founding sales i think i someone sent me a link to it when it wasn't even a book and it was just an online form format you know a, a google doc um but really, really helpful in terms of like actually the practical steps that you need to do to build out your first sales deck or whatever it is that you're going to go with. Pete's great. I met him a few years ago and uh, I think he really gets very like tactical. Here are the exact things you should do, the reports you should build, the metrics you should look at. It's how you measure a team. It's like there's, there's a lot of, um, lot of detail in there that's missing in a lot of other kind of sales advice, which tends to be like, hey, wake up, have a good attitude, attack the day. And Pete's is like, really, it's the meat. It's it's great. I think I think he's, he's super fantastic. Pragmatic. And that Zuora one, yeah, it's great. It's like, there's a big problem in the world. You know, it's going to affect you and you're going to be a winner or a loser. Like, I think it works. You got it's, it's getting the tone right though when you're talking to somebody. Um, but but yeah. I think the the psychology in that is is spot on. Um, those are great resources. I'll make sure I link to them for people that are listening. I'm curious. You know, you mentioned hiring Nathan as your first SDR. How's the team grown, and and how's that been for you? I presume at some point you had to start letting go of doing every call, but you still want to be in touch. How have you navigated that part of the journey? I think that's something that I've. Um... I haven't done as well as I could have, um, and that's that's a you know a, a, been a learning experience for me. I think there's um, two aspects to, to that, Arnie. So we've now grown quite a significant sales team. Um, it's not enormous, but it, but it's a decent size. We've got about um, eight or ten quota carrying reps. We've got um, a couple of leaders. We've got about ten SDRs, um, and we've got we've just this week. Um, had a VP of sales start within the team as well, which is super exciting. So, um, yeah, we, 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 we've grown a, a decent amount from those, from those early beginnings. What's been some of the reasons why we've succeeded along the route as far as much as we have succeeded is having people who've really stayed with the business and have grown and have that desire and, you know, really shared ambition for what we're trying to do with the business. When I look at that sales team, a lot of them have been here three, four years. Some have progressed from being an SDR to you know, being now senior execs um, w- within the company, which is amazing to see and a huge credit to them. But I think that you know has really helped um, helped fuel the growth that we've seen. I think if I reflect on um, as a you know as a founder transitioning to that um, then sales leader and, and and beyond, I think the parts that have been easier to give away have been the stuff around. Um, the the kind of the core conversations, the stuff that you don't have time to do as a founder, right? As, as you're as you're then scaling up, where I think we may have had some missed opportunities is ensuring that at every step along the way, we make sure that that learning that has already happened, whether that is you know from me as an individual contributor, then me as a SDR manager, then me as a sales manager, then me as a, a like the acting in the VP role to then w- whatever it is now. Um, ensuring that that is captured and shared in the right way i think that's something that when you're running super fast we've missed the step a couple of times and that means that whoever comes into that role then has to go through that learning themselves and actually being a bit more directive and saying like this is this is the way that we've learned how to do it and this is the best practice i think can be super powerful so if, if i was to do this again i think i'd make more of a conscious effort to make sure that we've documented and that we onboard new people into the specifics of how something has been working at that point in time 
Yeah, you know, when you've got 10 reps, you know, adding the next two, it shouldn't be a new thing. <laughs> you know, it's like the yeah. onboarding plan, I was imagine at this point it's pretty clear you know, what are the what are the things you need to learn before you can have a phone call and and i the way i like to do it is train on the how to do discovery first because you don't need to worry about how to do an order form and all that stuff until until you have someone who wants to buy and so focusing on the discovery and then how do you demo the product how do you engage ask the right questions because that way I, I found you can actually onboard um salespeople very quickly um, even if they have no domain experience. And I imagine as you grow now, you're going to hire people that don't have experience in the category. Uh, almost everyone that we've hired has some connection to the space, whether that's personal connection or, or something else, but actually hasn't worked in the space before. And that's been a really interesting dynamic for us. So I think it gives us a freshness in the industry, but but has meant that, that that's, that's been a bit different. We've also had to contend with, because we're in a vertical and it's a relatively defined vertical and we've got a, you know, a certain size addressable market, We've had to not only have an SMB motion, which is the core of the business, but also expanding into mid-market and enterprise. Um, the largest you know, deal sizes stretch up into the millions um, in ARR, um, right down to the you know, £300 a month type deal. And so that, I think, has been a, an interesting process for us to go through as well. Yeah. Do you find the buying process changes substantially as you go up market, yeah. more people involved? Yeah, and the speed, like in our SMB world, we can close a deal in 19, 20 days on average. In the mid-market enterprises, months. Um, yeah. Very different. Abid, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. I've got like 10 more questions I want to ask you, but <laughs> we are running up on time here. So uh, once again, thank you so much for spending time with me. Thanks for being a subscriber to the blog and good luck. Continue to grow your business. Thank you very much, Arnie. Thanks for having me.